sure if my wife is still in here or not, because she's probably going to remember this story a little bit differently than me. Um, I think I might be blending several different stories together, but nevertheless, it's my story, so I'm going to tell it. Uh, Around 2009, 2010, we took a family trip, uh, piled everyone into the minivan. I went through that stage, sorry, Um, and... uh, we piled everybody into the minivan, and, and we went south, and we were going to be gone for about 10 or 12 days, and we made a couple stops along the way. We're from northeast Indiana, as, as many of you know, so we hit Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, and Ruby Falls, Tennessee, and then we went a little further east and went to Savannah, Georgia, Tybee Island, swung back west, went to Orlando, and our ultimate destination was Clearwater Beach. Uh, family there. Uh, I went there as a kid growing up, and so that's got, got kind of a special place uh, in my personal history. But anyway, one of the days, I don't remember which, we were on the beach as a family and uh, enjoying what little surf there is on the golf side. But, you know, it's nice and pleasant. It's warm. We're having a good time. And I think Jen and I were, were, were sitting on a beach towel at, at some point. We kind of looked up and we saw David and Lily down by the water, but Morgan was nowhere to be found. She's our oldest. And we're looking, and of course, if any of you have ever uh, lost your kid, you know that, (laughs) that, that, that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach, like, you know, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And you're sort of panicked and frantic, and you're, and you're looking around. Joel told a story at the end of the message, or at the end of the, a week last week about losing a remote control. So amplify that to a kid, Joe. Um, (laughs) And so we're frantically looking. And of course, we're not the only people on the beach, so it's not like you can just look and see, hey, there, there she is, right? And so we're kind of frantic about it, and, and, and on down the beach, Morgan's just playing in the sand, sitting as the water's coming up, doing her thing. And of course, we get to her, and we're frantic. And of course, as the good parents we are, why did you run away? What a, you know, it's her fault, right? Um, We see a little bit of that kind of story today in our passage uh, in Luke. Um, We are in Luke 2. We're going to be, I'm going to touch on verses 39 and 40 because it's kind of a bookend, but we're primarily going to be in Luke 41 through 52. And we see, and this is going to be a familiar story to many of you, we see this sort of frantic search from Mary and Joseph uh, as they're trying to find Jesus who has disappeared. He is lost, right, in this caravan. So we'll get into that in a moment. Let's uh, pray, and then uh, we'll read through the passage together. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning thankful to gather together in your name. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, all around the world, uh, folks don't have the kind of freedoms to gather and worship as we do here, and that's something that we uh, never want to take for granted and never stop praising you for, Lord. So thank you uh, that we live here and that we're able to worship freely and that we're able to worship the one true God. God, we pray for uh, those this past week, it uh, seems like uh, COVID and allergies and different kinds of things are rearing their head again, Lord. So we pray for a rest and recuperation for those that are affected in that way. Lord, we pray for those in our congregation uh, that are recovering from surgeries. And we pray for, again, rest and just full healing from each of those instances. Now, God, we pray for today's message as we unpack your word in this fun little story, the only story that we get to read about Jesus as a boy. Lord, we pray for open ears and hearts as we discover your truths. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be in Luke 2. Uh, 39 uh, through 52. So if you are able, I'd ask you to stand with me uh, as we read God's Word this morning. Uh, this will be on, this, on, the, on the screens for you. Um, uh, two little caveats about today's message. One, uh, for those of you that are regulars, there's far fewer slides than normal, so I'd encourage you to have a Bible with you in your lap this morning because you're going to get uh, the main chunks here, and I'm going to reference stuff along the way. Uh, that it'd be easier if you had something in your lap, so just an FYI. And secondly, uh, the last several weeks have been uh, very application-heavy, um, so I've been kind of off the podium and that sort of thing. 
uh, today's is going to be more of a teaching message, so just letting you know. Um, all right, uh, God's Word here, Luke 2, starting in verse 39. All right. And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, uh, to their own city of Nazareth. Uh, they is Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus. Now the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12 years old, uh, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know. But supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey, and they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. And it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, uh, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have become or have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You may be seated. It's a tiny bit of context here uh, for those that uh, may not be familiar with what's going on here. Um, in the first chapter of Luke, we're introduced uh, to a number of different people. Uh, Luke talks about wanting to be very accurate in what he's recording uh, and telling people about the life of Jesus. And so we're introduced to John the Baptist, we're introduced to an angel. We've got these exchanges between an angel and a priest named Zechariah who is childless at an old age. Uh, we see an exchange between the angel and Mary telling her that she was going to give birth uh, to a son and to name him Jesus. And that's uh, kind of the gist of chapter one. And as we get into chapter two, uh, we see that uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We covered that a couple weeks ago. Uh, and then last week, we talked about uh, Jesus being uh, presented at the temple. Uh, there's a Jewish law and custom that says after eight days, a Jewish boy is to be circumcised, and the firstborn child is to be dedicated to God, referencing back uh, to the Exodus time and the Passover. And, and so that's what we covered last week. And, and so we got this skip forward from when Jesus was an infant, uh, last week, or in, in verses 21 through 40 or so, and now he's 12 years old, this passage tells us. So we've got this skip of 12 years, and that 12-year-old age is significant, and I'll get to that a little bit later on, uh, but I wanted you to know about that time jump um, and a couple other things about this passage. If we go to Matthew 2, uh, we can read a little bit more about the things that happened with Jesus as an infant, and it's not my intention to cover those things. We can uh, do study on our own, which I would encourage you to, to fill in some of those blanks. But this passage here is the only word that we have on what Jesus was like as a boy. This is it, this passage that we just read together. Um, I don't know why other things weren't recorded, uh, there, there is some tradition and, and other things that, and apocryphal things that have other things to say that, that mostly seem to be untrue or fabricated or certainly embellished. Uh, but this is what the Bible gives us about uh, Jesus's time as a boy. And so we should pull significance from that, that Luke 
would include this. Uh, just for reference, uh, in my father's house, we read that. Uh, I showed this over the last couple weeks just for acclimation. If you're unfamiliar with where all of this is happening, on the left there you see uh, a picture of, of Europe, Northern Africa, a little bit of the Middle East, and, and of course, uh, uh, as, it, as it goes over into uh, kind of the edge of China there and stuff. But the colored portions, the different colors that you see there, uh, this would have been what was known, uh, the known territories of the Roman Empire through about uh, the, the end of the first century AD. Um, and, and so those, that's what that is. So this would have been uh, the circumstance and setting uh, that these stories would have been taking place in. And over on the right is just sort of a blown up picture of where we see the action taking place in this last or in chapter two, really. So you see Nazareth there uh, to bring him to get circumcised and to, to dedicate him to the Lord. Uh, they had to take this trip uh, to Jerusalem. We can't see that here, but that is uphill. It's a treacherous trip. It's around 80 miles or so, another 10 or so from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And so that's what took place last week. And of course, uh, this week, they have gone back home and then they have come, again, 12 years later uh, to Jerusalem uh, for this feast. There's three feasts, uh, that three primary feasts that the Jewish uh, people celebrate. Uh, this is one of them, the Passover that we read here. So that's a little bit of context uh, to where we are and kind of how we got here to this passage today. Um, I see four uh, primary teaching points in this passage today, the first one, I, I needed to go back up to verse 39 and 40 a little bit, but, but we also see it throughout this passage and certainly closing. I wanted to draw your attention to verse 40 and also verse 52 before I jump into the point here. Notice verse 40 says, Now the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Think of this like uh, books on a bookshelf, and that's one bookend there, and we skip forward to verse 52, and we see, and Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And so we've got the other side of the book, the other bookend there. And so we've got this a really neat story captured in between there. Uh, the first teaching point this morning is mysteries of the incarnation. Now, we talked a little bit about the incarnation many weeks ago as that was, was told to Mary. Um, so that's something that you can go back uh, and, and listen to. Today's points are slightly different from uh, what I taught then. Uh, two points I want to make here is that we see Jesus grow in stature and Jesus grew in wisdom. Um, first, the stature or sort of his physical development uh, we see this uh, come through when it says uh, the child continued to grow and become strong. That's, that's going, that's talking about both. It's talking about phys physically and in wisdom. But in terms of Jesus being fully God and fully man, this is really uh, the easier of the two for us to understand his, his physical development. Uh, we, we see, we read, we know that he took on a human body, uh, the baby in the manger was a real baby, had all the physical needs that any baby would have, woke up in the middle of the night, was cranky, needed fed, needed burped, needed clothed, all of those things. Uh, we know uh, later on, as we'll learn in, in, in Luke, that as an adult that he suffered all of the same physical limitations that, that you and I uh, suffered from. The Bible says that he got tired, that he got hungry, he needed to eat and sleep. Uh, we see various temptations. You can imagine after 40 days of not eating, when he's tempted to turn stones into bread, uh, he's got those kinds of temptation. Uh, most importantly of all, uh, it was a real body that Jesus offered on the cross for our sins. Uh, it was flesh like ours that was born raised, uh, and bloodied 
at the end of his life. Uh, Jesus's body was a real, physical, human body, just like yours and I. Uh, this is the only way that he could save us. That's how this works. Uh, the Bible declares in 1 Peter 2.24 that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. But this is not, as I said, all that we mean when it's talking about the, the physical part of the incarnation. Of course, there's the second part of wisdom and knowledge and the mind of Christ. So he was growing in wisdom and knowledge as well. Now, this part of the, the doctrine of uh, the incarnation is a little trickier for us to understand. I think a, a lot of us, in a very simple way, think uh, that the mind of God was in the, the human body or form of Christ, like the complete mind of God. And so that Jesus, from the time he was in short pants all the way through, had this special knowledge uh, and was operating on a different level than you, you and I were from the get-go. Now, he did have special knowledge that, that was directed to him by the Father through the Holy Spirit as he grew, and we see in this passage. Uh, but it is not the case that he was operating with special knowledge as he was growing and in his normal human form. Otherwise, he would not be uh, fully human. He would not have all of our attributes. And so part of what's happening with the incarnation, we read that great passage in Philippians 2 about how Jesus emptied himself. And what he's doing there is he's emptying himself of being all-powerful, being all-present, being all-knowing, and he's submitting uh, to the Father's direction uh, as, as a child and, and obviously uh, throughout uh, his life. Now, what we need to understand most about this doctrine is that Jesus had a human mind and a human body. Like I said, many times I think we, we get this confused or just assume that it was God walking around in, in human form. Uh, if, if you want to do more study on this particular topic, there's all sorts of heresies that existed uh, in the first two or three centuries after Christ uh, that many of the uh, early councils uh, got right and established uh, uh, for the rest of well, and now, now until today, but th this is a, you might not know about it, or maybe you hear some false teaching about it, but this isn't an abstract sort of a thing, this divine nature of God while being also fully human. So what the Bible actually teaches uh, is a full incarnation in which the divine nature and the human nature are joined in the one person of Jesus Christ. Now, because these two natures are united in one person, both divine and human attributes are properly connected uh, to Christ. His humanity was a full humanity, including uh, his reason, his will, his intellect, his emotions. And so we have to be able to say that to call Jesus uh, fully human. This would also be for his mind as well, he needed to develop, right? As a, as a boy, he's developing. As a, as a child, he's developing. Luke says that here in 52, as he was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That means that, that Jesus himself was on this a process of learning not, and growing, not just physically, but also mentally, one theologian put it this way, he had a human mind subject to the same laws of perception, memory, logic, and development as our own. He observed and learned and remembered and applied. This would have been impossible if he had been born in possession of a complete body of wisdom and knowledge. Instead, he was born with the mental equipment of a normal child, experienced the usual stimuli, and went through the ordinary processes of intellectual development. This sounds a little strange to say about Jesus, because uh, we obviously put him in his rightful place, but 
This is a proper understanding of the incarnation. Now, there's one critical difference between Jesus uh, growing up in wisdom and stature uh, compared to you and I, and that is that Jesus did this without sin. Of course, right? See, his, his development, both his physical development and his, the development of his mind was unhindered by the depravity of sin. Now, we might not think much about this, but sin affects us in, in a multitude of ways, in all ways. It affects mind, mind, body, and soul. And so Jesus wasn't inhibited by this. Jesus was sinless, and so he wasn't affected in that mind, body, and soul way. So he was free to pursue God in every way, shape, and form. He was free to pursue that in his physical stature, which, I mean, he's not some whatever bodybuilder or giant dude or anything like that, but specifically in wisdom and knowledge and all of that, his mind was unhindered by sin. And so he could progress at a rate that, that, that you and I or the average person couldn't, which is, is what we read later on in this story. One final note on this. Um, we do read places in Scripture where Jesus knows something that, that he shouldn't know or, or that, that he ought not know or that you and I in, in typical human form wouldn't know. And so while Jesus is growing up with what we would call theologically general revelation, those things that we can observe and learn, uh, he also has access to special revelation. Remember, he's doing the will of the Father, and he's got the conduit of the Holy Spirit working in and through him. And so we do see, uh, obviously, numerous examples of Jesus uh, in our passage here and beyond of special revelation. One tiny little application point on this, and again, this is just a one point of four. Uh, this is a great thing to study and work after to, to continue to try to understand uh, the incarnation. Like God coming down from his rightful place of all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everything, all and subjecting himself, uh, the, uh, the Bible says condescending himself, humiliating himself into the form of a human being. Um, it's, it's really, uh, uh, well, this is one of the mysteries, right? Um, mysteries of the incarnation. This is not something that we can fully know or understand, but I would certainly encourage you uh, to pursue this. Uh, so the, the point there being, we will hear uh, sometimes those that are against what we believe that God couldn't understand, uh, that, that God not walked in my shoes, that he's not fully informed, that, that Jesus couldn't this or whatever, um, we see in Jesus's childhood, we see in Jesus's life, we see in Jesus's death and resurrection that he has a full and complete understanding of what it means to be uh, human, a full and complete understanding. So he's sympathetic to us. He's got an understanding beyond anything that, that, that we can know. He understands what it's like to grow, go and grow through life. Uh, the second teaching point this morning is, is the, uh, the lost boy part of the story. This is the fun part of the story. Um, uh, this is the part that we probably most really remember about this passage. This is certainly the part that they would make the Lifetime movie about because this is the heartwarming part and the tension and all of that stuff. So... Um, talk a little bit about that. Uh, we see here uh, in this passage, in this story, uh, examples of devotion, faithfulness, and obedience. 
I'll get to that in just a moment, but we see that with Joseph and Mary. We also see that with Jesus. Uh, and then, obviously, the, the big thing here is, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. And so it makes this interesting uh, tension in the story. Um, for those that don't know, I'm going to give a little context to what's, what's happening here. Um, going to Jerusalem would have been an annual occurrence for Jesus and his family. Um, like I said, there was three different uh, things that they would go to Jerusalem for from all over the place, uh, particularly this one. Uh, we read here in verses 41 and 42, and his parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Um, when he became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Now, only Joseph was required to go to this uh, but this was a godly family, as we've seen develop for us so far in Luke. And so they all made this annual pilgrimage uh, for the Passover. Um, Mary and Joseph uh, had made a covenant to raise uh, Jesus in the right way. And this included leading him in public worship. And so that's a display of this. And that's one of the things that we would see Jesus carry on uh, and maintain as he was an adult. Now, I put myself in this story trying to visualize what this might have been like, and going to Passover was probably a pretty cool experience as a boy. Um, there's probably two or 300,000 people uh, that are in Jerusalem at the time because everyone's coming for this festival. So remember how big Nazareth was? Does anybody remember? 2,000 people at best, so a small little hole in the wall, right? And so he would have been around all of these people, the festivals, sacrifices, all of these different things. Uh, and, and Jesus would have probably seen friends and family that he didn't normally see. There was praying, there was singing, there was sacrifices, and there would have been all kinds of different worship. Um, this had some special significance as well for Jesus at the time that we see that he was turning 12 or being 12. In another year, he would be 13, and that's the age in the Jewish tradition that a young man became a full member of the synagogue or, or a man. And so Jesus was preparing to become a son of the law, it says, or, or the term that you and I would know better, a bar, mit, bar mitzvah is what that means. Uh, the rabbis said that when a boy turned 12, it was time for him to go up to Jerusalem with his father and learn the rituals of the Passover, uh, which is why Luke says that Jesus went up according to the customs. This is what this was like there. It was also obviously the time of this sort of famous mix-up. I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. So what we have here is this big giant caravan uh, traveling by the hundreds or the thousands. That map that I showed you uh, for safety purposes and for fellowship, they would have been traveling in a big group from Jerusalem uh, back down uh, to the Galilee, and then of course they would break off and go to their separate towns. And the way that this worked was that the women and the younger children were up front uh, and the men and the older boys would have been in back with the dads. Now, Jesus being 12, um, it's pretty easy to understand that dad probably assumed that he was with mom, and mom assumed that he was with dad, okay? I mean, we've probably all lost, maybe I'm the only one, lost our kids at one point or another, assuming that mom had... Uh, one or dad had one. Um, so that's how, in a practical sense or in a pragmatic sense, uh, this happened. So, of course, uh, they get to their destination. Uh, this is like a three or four day journey, 80 miles. Remember, they're not, they're not flying Spirit Airlines or whatever. Um, and so they, they stopped the first night at a, at a, designated point. Everyone's supposed to gather together with their family, and, and lo and behold, there's no Jesus. He wasn't with dad. He wasn't 
with mom. And so you, you can imagine the, the tension and the, the frantic nature, probably more Mary uh, than Joseph. Um, but so that's what's happening there. So they've got a, a day's travel away from Jerusalem. So they wake up the next morning. The caravan carries on. They head back to Jerusalem, a whole nother day's journey, right? On the third day, because we, uh, we, we see this, that it, they, it happened after three days, they found him in the temple. So on the third day, they're searching Jerusalem. Uh, by this time, uh, many of the, the folks that had come in uh, for the celebration would have been gone. So they're looking for him, they're looking for him, they're looking for him. And um, obviously on the third day, they found him. So that's a little context to what's going on in the story there. Um, it does make a pretty interesting uh, like, I've been there before, right? I, there, sometimes in the Bible, we're, we're scratching and clawing to try and find application and meaning or uh, understanding in simple ways. And yet, in a, in a passage like this, in, a, in this part of the story, we can, we can put ourselves in there because we've, we've been there. So, you know, Mary and Joseph would have had confidence in Jesus at this point at 12 years old. He would have shown himself to be, uh, you know, probably mostly not doing bad things. Um, but I mean, you know, a toddler is going to be a toddler and a young teenager is going to be a young teenager and everything. But there was a trust with him. And so I, I don't think anybody's doing anything wrong here. I don't, Mary didn't do anything wrong. Joseph didn't do anything wrong. And, and we'll learn here in a moment that Jesus wasn't doing anything wrong either, uh, even though it might sort of seem that way. A uh, third point here uh, is uh, focusing on this statement of in my father's house, in my father's house. And we see uh, two primary pieces of this that I want to touch on, uh, that Jesus was a student at the foot of his teacher's. Um, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but this is actually the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is referred to as a student. Every time else he's referred to as uh, a teacher. And so this is, again, a unique glimpse, our only glimpse as Jesus, uh, as a boy. And of course, we find out uh, directly from him that he's right where he's supposed to be. So, so we have this big, uh, dramatic buildup of the parents' excuse me, looking for their firstborn son, the anxious days of travel and frantically looking for him. And again, this is probably the thing that we would make the, the movie out of, looking for the lost boy. But when you read it in the original language, the emphasis here, the primary verb is not on that part of the story. Uh, it's, part, it's where Jesus says that he stayed behind. That's supposed to be the primary action in this whole passage. So what that means is that Jesus remained in Jerusalem at the temple just as he intended to, just as he was supposed to. Uh, we might think of this as a place that uh, satisfied his soul. He wanted to learn as much as he could from these teachers uh, that he had access to about Old Testament history, uh, asking questions and all of that sort of thing. And so it was on the third day there, where Mary and uh, Joseph happened upon Jesus. Um, we might think that they probably looked in the temple first, but I I'm, I'm guessing if we put ourselves in that position, if we had a lost child, we would be expecting our child to be frantically looking for us, right? Like on the beach that day, Morgan wasn't running up and down the beach, where's mommy, where's daddy? She was there doing her thing, playing in the sand like, she was doing what she was intended to do all the time. And so Jesus wasn't frantically looking for his mom and dad. He's sitting in the temple. Uh, he's learning. And of course, um, what's happening here uh, is not so familiar to us in this setting. Um, perhaps a Bible study or a life group or maybe a college setting might describe better what's happening in here. But uh, as was the custom at this time, the teachers would sit down with the students. We'd all be seated together. Or maybe I would be 
like this, and it was an exchange. It, it was a conversation. So the teachers would be teaching. They would be asking questions. They would be expecting answers and responses from all of those in attendance. And of course, those questions and those comments would lead to further discussion. So it was, it was this very engaging, much more informal than what we're doing today. This is what's happening in the temple at, at this time. That's what the, the scene would look like. And so they're asking questions and answers, and, and, we, and we read here uh, uh, that Jesus is engaging in, to, in some pretty profound ways, uh, asking questions, listening, um, What was unique about Jesus uh, that, that Scripture points out to us and, and, and why it's, it's listed this way, uh, verse 47 says, And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. So this would have been different than whoever else was sitting around. Uh, the things that he was saying, the things that he was asking would have been different. And the fact that this was coming from a 12-year-old would have also been uh, profound as well. Um, right in the middle of this, mom breaks in, right? You can imagine, frantically searching, it's day three, where's my son? Maybe she's thinking about all of this stuff that angels told her and... and, and, and who her son is and all of this stuff, and she, she sees him, and, and mom is going to mom, right? You know what I mean? When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. That sounds like something mom would say, doesn't it? Right? It's the same thing that, that we said to Morgan on the beach. I don't remember exactly how old she was, but like it was Morgan's fault, not our fault for not watching her and letting her wander, right? So that's what's, that's what's happening here. And I think those are emotions uh, that we can all understand and relate to, uh, the, the tension and the anxiety of, of, of Jesus being lost and also the relief uh, at finding him. Um, it says here in the passage, and we've read this a couple different times uh, just so far through chapters 1 and 2, uh, but notice that it said uh, that they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them, and I'll touch more on that in a moment, but it says about Mary and his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart, and so she's still processing who this is and, and what's going on and why it matters and her role in it and, and still trying to absorb all of this stuff uh, 12 years later. Now, speaking of 12 years, we have obviously no indication on what things would have been like over the last decade plus. Um, but if they're living normal everyday life uh, and Jesus is helping around the house with carpentry and those kinds of things, then the whole divine piece of his life may have sort of faded into the background. And so they come to Jerusalem here, obviously 12 years later, and, and they're thrust back into this divine nature of their son. I think there's a little bit of that going on there as well. This response that we see from Jesus, uh, he says, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I needed to be in my father's house. Now, these are the first recorded words that we have of Jesus. And this is the sort of climax of this little story. And it seems like Luke included this story specifically for this purpose. In my father's house. This goes back to the first point a little bit where part of him saying this reveals or further reveals Jesus's identity, doesn't it? My father's house. This was an expression 
that was new. This was an expression that we see nowhere else in Scripture. If we flip through the pages of the Old Testament, we'll see Father, we'll see our Father in the New Testament. We never see my Father. This is new and unique. This is him acknowledging and taking ownership of who he is, of of his identity as the true Son of God. Uh, We'll recall that later on in his life, as he's interacting with Pharisees and Sadducees and, and different folks, that his claim to be the Son of God, his claim that this is his Father, is what really ultimately gets him in trouble and sends him on his path to death. His response here leaves us knowing one specific thing, and that's that he was right where he was supposed to be. Right where he was supposed to be. Again, Mary and Joseph didn't do anything wrong. Jesus didn't do anything wrong here. There was no uh, sin. He was not disobeying any instructions they'd given him. Uh, He was exactly where they should have expected to find them or find him when they really think about who he is and and what's happening. They certainly had the right to expect him to be part of the caravan or assume that, but obviously their assumption was wrong. And, and Jesus, by pointing this out, wasn't being the typical smart aleck 12-year-old. Um, it was just obvious or so obvious to him that he was amazed that his parents wouldn't know where he was at and why, where to find him and why he was there. They were only his earthly parents, remember, and they knew that. But his real father was God in heaven. And so Jesus said, I must be in my father's house. This was a matter of the father working through the Holy Spirit, working into Jesus even as a boy in what we might call like a divine uh, compulsion, uh, like an irresistible pull to be in the temple, to be uh, in his father's house, to be around the word and learning the word and asking questions about the word and and, and being all in that situation. And so uh, we saw, so we have... uh, Jesus growing in his physical stature, Jesus growing in his wisdom. And of course, as this passage closes, we see that Jesus is also growing in his relationship uh, with God and those around him. And and we see this come through and what I'm labeling as perfect submission or perfectly submissive, we might uh, think of it. Uh, Jesus was called to do, missed the word there, to do the Father's will. Thy will be done, not mine, but yours. And he closes this passage by giving us a a, a very practical example straight from Jesus. Uh, In my father's house, uh, that's the way that we read it in our translation. There would be another way to interpret that phrase, uh, which gives us a better understanding of this submission part. Uh, What he's literally saying there is that I must be in the things of my father. In the things of my father. So in context here, that obviously means the temple first and foremost, but it it also has a wider application for Jesus and for us. He was called to be about his father's business. This is where God did his work back in this time was at the temple, right? That's what they're coming for. That's what they're celebrating these feasts for. Jesus was always, always, remember sinless life, always in the things of his father. Uh, Later on, he would say in his life, uh, in John, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's John 6, 38. And I will always do the things that are pleasing to him, John 8, 
29. Jesus was always minding his father's business, doing his father's work, and submitting to his father's will. It was this obedience that led him to the cross, right? But when the time came for Jesus to die for our sins, he said to his father what he'd been saying his whole life, thy will be done, not mine, but yours. And now he gives us an example, really a perfect example of what this type of submission looks like for him and for you and I as we close this passage. It says that, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. See, Jesus went back to Nazareth, back to the family business, back to obeying his parents. That's what he did. He was obedient. He was faithful. He was devoted to his family. And if ever there were a child that could be stubborn or rebellious or go their own way, you would think it would be him. And yet, what we see here is a perfect example of obedience. We see a perfect uh, example of him submitting to what Scripture says children should uh, submit to their parents. That's something that we struggle with, don't we? Submission. Talked a little bit about this last week, that we are incredibly independent, especially as Americans. We want control over everything, and that control typically doesn't mean uh, us submitting to something or submitting to something else or someone or something else. Uh, we know that our children don't want to submit a lot of times. Uh, wives don't, don't want to respect husbands. Husbands don't want to love wives like Ephesians 5 tells us. As workers, we don't always want to obey our bosses. Uh, as church members, we don't want to obey uh, primarily the word of God, but maybe other church leaders as well. As citizens, we don't want to follow our leaders because we know better, we know right, and maybe in some cases we do. But there is this nature in us uh, to not submit. Instead, we want to resist virtually everything and go our own way. That's this independent streak that we have. But God calls us clearly in Scripture uh, to submit, to serve and submit to those around us, to, to those that he's put in authority over us, to those that we're in covenant relationship with. And Jesus could have struggled with this like you and I do, except for our example here. He submits. He submits to his parents. He goes back. And for the next 18 years, he serves in the family business. He submits to mom and dad. Where this sort of comes to the focal point for you and I is that Jesus' submission, uh, while compelling in this particular story, ultimately matters for our salvation. Jesus had to submit to the will of the Father in a number of ways for our salvation. He had to become human, so he had to empty himself. He had to have a mind and a body like ours. He had to grow through the stages of, of his physical development and mental development, all the struggles that we face in, in each and every one of those ways. Temptations. Uh, endured physical limitations as he grew or was injured or whatever. Submitted to the will of his parents as this passage closes. And did all that, all that submission, all that submission to the Father's will uh, so that he could live a, a perfect life and offer himself as a perfect sacrifice. Well, that's what the submission is all about. Where that applies to you and I is it requires the same kind of submission from us uh, for belief and trust in God for our salvation. We are called to follow Jesus' example. 
The simple example in this neat little story here about submitting, uh, we're called to follow that example. Our submission to Christ, our trust in Christ, our belief in Christ, our acknowledgement of him as Lord of our life, that he was born in real human form, that he lived his life, that he died for our sins and was resurrected, is our submission to him for salvation. What that means once we're saved, once we're followers of Christ, is that we would do the same thing that we saw Jesus do in his early life and his development throughout adulthood, that we're going to grow in our stature, our strength, our wisdom, that we're going to pursue God in all of the ways that we see Christ pursue God and give us an example for. I think it's an interesting thing for us to um, understand and have a better idea of Jesus as a boy. I would like there to be several other books for us to read more and know more what Jesus was like as a boy They have the same issues that my son had, that your son had, that we had as boys and all of that stuff. But this is the story that we have. And there's a lot to learn from it. Next week, as we uh, carry on in this message, we get to jump back in and learn uh, about John the Baptist ministry. And and this this story is going to jump forward another 18 years or so. And we're going to begin to see the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. So there is uh, much more to that story uh, that I would encourage you to read and and develop on your own as you go from here uh, today and and this week. And I certainly encourage you uh, to do that. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for uh, being with us this morning. Thank you for uh, a story like this where we get to see a little glimpse of your son and, and what he was like as a boy. Lord, it's clear that, that he had uh, all of the attributes and, and good and bad uh, as, as a human, and yet uh, the divine nature as well that, that we can see just in little pieces as a 12-year-old. Lord, I pray that we would uh, see Jesus' example and his desire and pursuit of you and the things of you and, and, and his desire to submit to you and your will. I pray that we would see that as an example for ourselves as believers, uh, that, that we would recognize that same pursuit is uh, desired and, and required of us as we become believers. Uh, we thank you for your son and his uh, sacrifice to make that happen. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be sure to stay up to date with the latest information at lscc.tv. While you're there, click on Connect to find a way to get more involved at LSCC or learn about how to put your talents to work in one of our ministries. If you've been blessed by this podcast and call LSCC home, consider supporting LSCC financially by going to lscc.tv give. Big or small, every gift helps us in our mission to love God, love others, and be the church in our mission field, near and far. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.